Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to the Fixed Income Conversation Corner podcast right here on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. For today, we are glad to welcome back from our UBS Chief Investment Office, Leslie Falconio, CIO's Head of Taxable Fixed Income Strategy for the Americas. And then joining us from our partners at Oak Tree, glad to welcome Armin Panassian, Head of Performing Credit with the firm. So with that, Leslie, Armin, thank you for spending some time with our listeners, our clients. Leslie, I'll pass it over to you to lead today's conversation. Great. Thank you, Dan. And thank you, Armin. It's really, it's, thank you so much for coming on to this podcast. It's, you know, with CPI tomorrow and the fact that we just had non-farm payrolls um, last week and we have this, you know, a bit of a divergence, whether or not the Fed's pausing or not pausing, I think this is a really timely conversation in terms of what investors should expect, particularly in the second half of the year. So I just I kind of just want to get started with something that we all know as fixed income investors and what everyone really has been talking about since the beginning of, of 2023, which is this just large opportunity set within the fixed income side entering in 23, given the large yields we saw in 22. And finally, fixed income is doing what it's supposed to do, which is generating income. But, you know, how do you sort of see these sectors and especially those income generators sort of moving forward? Um given what the Fed might do over the next, you know, over the next, say, second half of the year and whether or not we really believe what the market's pricing in in terms of, you know, substantial easing in the second half. Yeah, thanks, Leslie. Um, so uh, I think I'll start with what I think the Fed will do, and then maybe we could talk about, you know, the various fixed income sub-asset categories after. I think, generally speaking, the Fed is cautiously looking at raising rates, um and will do so until it gets to a quote-unquote real Fed funds rate, meaning the Fed funds rate exceeding inflationary rates. Um, you know, that's kind of what you need to see for inflation to become under control and, and into that 2 to 3% target. And the Fed doesn't want to rapidly raise rates at this point because you know, inflation does, at least directionally, appear to be uh, going the right way. Um, but um, but they certainly are willing to raise rates a little bit, I think, from this point forward, uh, just to make sure that we don't land ourselves in a stagflationary environment where we have we have the worst of both worlds, which is a stagnant economy and an inflationary picture. Um, as a result, I do think that while we are nearing the end of the Fed rate rises, uh, I'm not sure that we're going to see meaningful rate declines this year. Um, I think we are probably, or the Fed is probably going to err on the side of leaving rates higher for longer, um, with um, the only uh, deviation being if something material breaks in the economy. Um, given that backdrop, I think a few things are brewing in the background in terms of both risks and opportunities on the fixed income side. Um, in floating rate asset classes, like broadly syndicated loans um, that, that trade on the market, there's, there's ETFs out there as well, um, you know, those securities are generating the highest income they've returned in, or generated in a, in a very, very long time. They generally price at SOFR or the standard overnight rate plus a spread. And that SOFR rate today is about four and a half percent. Um, if the Fed funds rate goes up, SOFR is expected to go up as well. But, but if we stay at about four and a half percent there and have a spread of about another four percent, uh, in the highest quality parts of the senior loan market, you know, the average is actually higher than 4% spreads. Um, but, but if we just looked at the highest quality part and, and said we're going to get, you know, 4.5% SOFR plus a 4% spread, 
you're going to generate something like 8 to 9% income in broadly syndicated loans for a while. Now, that income doesn't come for free. Um, it, it's a higher cost of borrowing for the borrowers of those types of securities. So if short-term rates stay high for a longer than um, expected amount of time, there could be stress that builds up in some of that borrower base. And so it's a kind of a double-edged sword, a, you know, two sides of the coin. Um, in one respect, you're getting more income, but in the other respect, you are uh, invested in a company that's going to be experiencing some elevated degrees of, of stress as, as the cost of borrowing rises. Now, in terms of the opportunity set on the, you know, the fixed part of the fixed income area, which you know, would be high-yield bonds and investment grade in the corporate landscape where you have you know, generally long-duration assets, um, uh, fixed rate um, with, with maturities that are out to 2027 to 2030, um, those securities have um, sort of a, a different set of puts and takes and, and I think are quite attractive right now. Um, first, with um, with what happened after the um, with, after COVID or during COVID, a lot of these businesses, the best quality fixed rate borrowers, were able to extend their maturities in late 2020 and into 2021, and so they had the benefit of time where inflation, although it may cause short term fluctuations in their profitability, um, these businesses don't have a material change, at least in the cost of their borrowing in the near term. Whereas the floating rate borrowers obviously have a much more rapid and volatile experience in the cost of borrowing in the near term. Um, those businesses with fixed rate liabilities that don't have maturities again until 2027 through 30, they actually benefit from inflation to some extent. Um, because as inflation takes place or takes hold, in the short run there's volatility, but in the long run these businesses, the highest quality parts of the, of the market, will be able to pass through cost increases and will be able to raise prices such that the nominal dollars of profit out of these businesses in three, five, seven years from now will actually be greater than what it was last year or even in 2019. So inflation in the medium to long-term perspective helps these businesses that are actually are fixed-rate borrowers. So I think when you do see that turn occurring where the Fed looks like it's flattening to maybe even leaning on a downward trend of rates, that uh, fixed-rate opportunity set in particular is going to look a lot more attractive than the floating rate. So when we think about that, let's just, I just want to just talk really quickly about the, the loan side. I have, to ask, I have to ask you this question. I mean, we are, we're neutral right now on student loans, and I, and I completely, first of all, I understand and believe in every point that you made, but how do you, kind of, how do you see just as, as a, I just want to just tail on to that for a minute, like either defaults going forward or sort of what is, or the CLO market as a whole as it relates to, say, the loan market? Yeah, I think um, the senior loan market today is the worst quality it's been in quite some time. Um, unfortunately, about 60 or, or no, close to 50% of that market is um, single B rated or B3 with Moody's. Um, and that's a problem because CLOs own 70 to 75% of the loan market and they are a rating sensitive owner of those assets. So if there is a low rated asset, CLOs generally don't want to buy them. Um, I think elevated cost of borrowing um, for these high levered, highly levered senior loan uh, issuers is already becoming a problem uh, in terms of pressuring the cash flows. There isn't a maturity issue with either high yield bonds or senior loans. There, there really isn't very much by way of maturity between now and the end of 2024. 
But in senior loans, uh, I think the default rates are going to tick up because of cash flow problems. And it remains to be seen whether private equity firms will support these businesses with incremental equity checks needed to right-size their capital structures. So as we flip to CLOs, and you know, CLOs are just levered buyers of senior loans, um, there is a lot of demand for CLO AAA securities right now, mainly from insurance companies at the moment. The reason insurance companies are buying these AAAs is because the spreads are about 190 over SOFR, and because insurance companies with high, in a high-rate environment are more likely to be to find it attractive or easy to originate annuities. So, out of all investor asset or investor types, insurance companies are probably the one area uh, that are that are you know pretty uniformly growing assets under management at the moment because of the rate the rate picture. Um, but with that said, though, older vintage CLOs, CLOs that were done in the last three four years, are nearing the end of their investment period. And are therefore declining in their uh, in their bid interest for senior loans, uh, and this is going to become a problem towards the end of this year and into early next year because by the end of this year, 40% of CLOs will have exited their reinvestment period, and they are unlikely to be refinanced in the new deals because the cost on the AAA uh, securities is meaningfully higher today than what it was you know in 2019 or 2021 when a lot of these deals were put in place. So I would be so when we think about that, or just as a whole, I would be remiss, and you know, you and I, one of the investment community, both on the equity and fixed income side, has been I would say caught off guard a bit in terms of what's happening with some of the financial instability in the banking system as a whole. And you know, I'm just curious, what are your thoughts, sort of, even with those opportunistic um, allocations that you had mentioned earlier, even with the Fed for that matter, like what do you what do you think, sort of this 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 current you know, potential snowballing crisis might have. I'm not, I said I use the word crisis lately because we know it's not what it was back in the GFC timeframe. But this sort of this instability that we're seeing in, in the banking system have on, on fixed income, or if you think it'll really, uh, you know, deviate from the higher for longer mantra that Chair Powell has been speaking so frequently. Yeah, I, it feels like a slow train wreck. Um, I, it's, um, I think you will have uh, a high, I think you will have higher for longer, again, until something material breaks. But what does higher for longer mean in terms of outcomes? It means that certain asset types like commercial real estate and the off, commercial office real estate uh, will start uh, having further and further issues. We've already seen a few high-profile um, uh, foreclosures take place. And in the office space, I think that continues we, frankly, I think it's only the tip of the iceberg so far. Uh, I think even the darling asset classes within real estate, like multifamily and industrial, may have some issues as well, because those particular asset classes were, were priced very, very close to a flawless uh, type of execution. Um, you know, if you look at the cap rates for those asset classes, the, you know, the net operating income of those, of those asset classes divided by the value, they are the tightest among the real estate um, sub-asset classes and therefore the most sensitive to rates. So as rates rise and if you do have some maturities or rate resets, the question is, you know, is there enough equity to come in to right-size the capital structure or has there been enough growth in the rental income that the capital structure is just sort of reasonable? I think these are all to be determined. And the higher for longer mantra from, from Chairman Powell uh, is going to result in more stress over the coming quarters in some of these asset classes 
rather than benign markets. I don't think it's going to be like the global financial crisis, um, but I would expect to see asset bubbles uh, bursting. I would also expect to see further, you know, smaller regional bank failures as a considerable amount of real estate is held um, uh, on those bank balance sheets. So it's it, it just feels like we're early, uh, but and it feels like a slow-moving train wreck um, that's about to occur. You mentioned real estate, which has you know, been, to say, as we know, a, a really a big headline, particularly that in terms of office space and just actually the the positioning and the somewhat of a purpose of a lot of these smaller banks have served as lenders. So what is your view on, on CMBS and office going forward? You know, is it overly done? Is it correctly priced? Or do you still have sort of pockets of vulnerability ahead of us? Yeah, it, in terms of office properties, it's um, it's a story of haves and have-nots. There are some markets, very few, but some markets that are very strong, very tight markets that are still seeing rental growth. Um, but I would say, by and large, very large office markets, including Manhattan, um, uh, are experiencing elevated vacancies and shadow vacancies. As these vacancies play through, the landlords of these office buildings have to evaluate whether they want to spend the tenant improvement dollars to now earn a lower rental rate per square foot. And what we're finding is that given the bloated uh, debt stacks on these businesses, the landlords are unwilling to make those, make those expenditures. Um, so I think that, um, I, I think that there is further stress that occur. And we're also now seeing some of the regional banks evaluate their portfolios to try to see if it makes sense to lighten the load on their commercial and industrial uh, real estate exposure on the lending side. Um, I think what they're finding, however, is that the prices are lower than uh, what they would ideally achieve, uh, just given the higher rate environment and given the uncertain picture. Um, so we're not seeing a lot of transactions yet, but we are hearing of conversations, uh, the request for bids or proposals for, for portfolio takeouts. Now, what does that mean for CMBS in particular? It means that um, the CMBS market, um, it, for certain types of assets, like the poorer quality office properties, I mean, you could see this in single asset, single borrower securitization, or within the office portfolios in a, in a conduit CMBS or a diversified portfolio uh, of, uh, of real estate assets that underpin a CMBS securitization, you would see that trading in those securities is very illiquid because there are no buyers. There are a lot of willing sellers, but the willing sellers are finding that there isn't enough buying um, interest. And so they're not, at least for now, testing the market uh, and finding a, a lower and lower price that would clear the market. Um, in the darling uh, asset classes, uh, the, again, the multifamily and the industrial, there's also very little liquidity because there aren't willing sellers. The sellers are, you know, like their positions, they don't want to, they don't need the liquidity, uh, at least most of them, at least for now, don't need their liquidity. And the buyer base, I would say, is unenthusiastic. While they would like to add CMBS in these areas, they generally speaking uh, see the implied yields on those higher quality real estate assets as being inferior to corporate lending or other opportunity sets. So CMBS right now, in terms of liquidity, is broken uh, for different reasons, but we're just... Um, we're waiting, waiting to see kind of which direction it takes. It's, it's probably, 
gonna gonna widen. I think at some point there will be loose hands and nervousness that result in lower quality CMBS to, to trade hands in a in a very disorderly way. I we're watching that closely. Yeah, that's that's great. I mean, and I, I know here it's been a very topic, a very headline topic of discussion as well. That was that was great commentary. I appreciate it. So let's just talk about like very simple interest rates now for for a second. I mean, for from our perspective, you know, we came into a year a little bit long, um, not overly in terms of too too much further over our skis. We've been really opportunistically playing a range, you know, that we've seen. And since you know that March, whatever it was, March eighth, chair chair Powell testimony, when we thought that we'd start hiking fifty again and the terminal rate would be back at six percent and yields ten year yields have gotten to four oh eight, we've been on this downtrend. Um but how do you, how are you looking at sort of you know interest rates right now, and where do you think would be a good time to start adding sort of interest rate risk? We've, we've again as as yields have moved higher, which you know we, obviously we have CPI tomorrow, but we do our from our perspective in CIO, we look for the ten-year yield to trend about three three and a quarter at the end of the year. That's not substantially lower than where we are right now, but we do think you're going to have these sort of moves higher in yield given the amount of dovishness that's priced in the second half, and, but we want to add interest rate risk when that occurs. I'm just curious of your thought on that. Yeah, it's a great question, and, and it requires a crystal ball, unfortunately. <laughs> but uh, I, I think that, you know, generally speaking, I would say the, the fundamental economic trends in the economy are, um, are, are fairly strong, stronger than I thought that they would be in terms of consumer spending, in terms of corporate earnings, um, a lot of businesses are now back to 2019 levels on in, in terms of profitability, um, and, and that's uh, I would say surprisingly good. Um, but with that said, also I think the inflationary picture, uh, the unemployment numbers, if you kind of dig through them, uh, suggest that the that the economy is cooling. Um, and so I would I do think that there will be reason for the Fed to consider a pivot at some point this year. Whether they pivot or not is is unknown. Um, but I think in the near term, there's there's one, uh, I think, pretty large issue that the Fed will have to contend with and the Treasury will have to contend with, and that is the debt ceiling. Um, you know, as the debt ceiling is lifted, which I, which I fully expect that it will be, um, there will be over a trillion dollars of, uh, of Treasuries that need to be printed, unclear who the buyers of those treasuries are, whether the market is deep enough in such a short time frame. You know, this will be over the course of a few months that it gets printed rather than years. Um, and, you know, but for that technical event that is likely going to be pressuring rates uh, to widen, I would say that generally speaking, rates should be on the tightening trend given, um, you know, the, the, the macro indicators uh, suggesting that the economy is getting to a um, into a reasonable spot from an inflationary standpoint so I, I'm I, I can't call the rate um, the rate shot yet because of this this treasury issue uh, but I think once that um, that pig in the Python you know occurs and is kind of passed through um, at that point I think um, going longer duration uh, is going to be a very attractive place to play one because of rates and two because of quality uh, from a rate perspective, it's obvious, you know, if, as rates decline, these longer duration assets have the pull to par benefit. Uh, there is convexity in high yield bonds and an investment grade that um, I think is going to be a very strong deliver, deliverer of total return over the course of the next few years. 
Uh, and I think that that makes it a buy at that point. It's probably at some point this year. And from a fundamental standpoint, both high-yield bonds and investment-grade securities are very high quality. In the case of high-yield bonds, higher quality than they've ever been, with about 60% of the market being a double B-rated uh, securities. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, with the benefit of fixed uh, 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 fixed cost of borrowing for an extended period of time, they will be a beneficiary of inflation. So I fully expect for high-yield to be a very strong buy at some point this year. But between now and that point, there is this issue of the, of the debt ceiling that needs to be resolved. So let's let's talk about that for a second in terms of your high yield perspective, because you know, listen, the high yield, you know, it's, it's even during this this you know instability we've seen in the the banking sector, and just you know, just sort of having it be subject to rate vol or spread vol. You know, it's not as though we've had this huge blowout in spreads, right? So when you look at sort of these credit spreads, particularly on a risk-adjusted return basis, whatever you know these excess spreads might be, and what the volatility might be, when you what level do you think is a really if you were neutral, right? What level would be do you think is compelling? I mean, you know, as you amply pointed out, the credit quality of things like high yield is much better today than it was, you know, ten years ago. You know, and you know, the old well, if we go into recession, you're automatically going to 950 in high yield spread. Is probably not going to be the case. But wh- at what level do you think is a good time to enter? Is it the 600 we saw last October? Is it 750? Assuming that you're expecting the economy to slow down. Yeah, it's a great question. So, um, you know, historically, the the range of high yield spreads is typically around 300 to 500 spreads. Uh, this is kind of more in sort of functioning market environments where at 500, a good high yield borrower doesn't want to issue because it's just too expensive. They'll they'll kind of wait. And at 300, uh, there really aren't enough buyers because it's not really high yield at that point. It's sort of medium yield. So, but that 300 to 500 spread is where it typically bounces. And today we're on the higher end of that range. We're at about 475. Um, when we have seen high yield blow out to 600, 700, 800, or or even higher, they generally speaking haven't. It hasn't been that wide for very long. The, you know, since the global financial crisis, um, the periods of high-yield dislocation um, are, are, can be measured in months rather than quarters or years. And so I don't think that you can time the markets well enough to sit in cash and then push in only at 700 or 800 spreads. I think, I think you need to sort of buy a little bit at, you know, at, a, at a 450 or 500 spread and buy a whole lot more at 600 and buy whatever you can at 700, but to wait for the 700s probably leaves a lot of return on the table. Um, I think high yield is a reasonable buy right now. I wouldn't spend my last dollar at, at a 475 spread because I do think it, it could go wider. But from a quality perspective, again, that's, that's probably the governor here that limits high yield blowing out to 700 and 800 because so much of the high yield market is so high quality now. You know, the last time we saw it at, at 800 or, or 700, was really in the thick of COVID, and that was when we still had a pretty meaningful amount of triple Cs and a pretty meaningful amount of, of energy companies in the high-yield bond market. Well, both of those washed out uh, in pretty meaningful ways in, during COVID. And so you, 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 know, you lost a part of the market that was low quality. Um, the market now only has 6% maturity between the now, now and the end of 24, so you just don't have a maturity issue. It's hard to see... Um, Given 60% of the market's a double B, it's hard to see 700 spreads on high yield for any extended period of time, uh, as much as I would like to 
uh, you know, wait for that. I, I don't think it's wise to do it. I, I would buy a little bit here and buy a whole lot more in 600 and 650. So in the interim, though, I mean, with that said, and I, and I agree with that, those levels, by the way, but when we think about it, we've been, we've been leaned towards, towards sort of the higher quality, which, by the way, as, as you and I both know, is, is a bit of a consensus point of view in, in that regard. But when you think about the fact that what you're able to earn, say, in an IG, even if it's in a barbell format, given the fact that Herman's inverted, um, what's your view on high high quality now? Do you think do you, are, are you would you lean more towards the IG side of the equation? And I mean, we all know that things like you know, agency MBS are at the 98th percentile nowadays, given what's happened um, from the technical headwinds that they face. But what do you think in terms of the higher quality here? Do you think it's it's better to play the safe, or are you sticking more towards the higher credit embedded sectors in an overall portfolio? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. So w- when when double B rated high yield had gotten to about 275, this is a few weeks ago. Um, uh, it's since widened to about 325 or 320. Uh, so uh, just to give you some, I mean, there's been some volatility on the double B side uh, in recent weeks, but at 275, it felt a little tight to IG. Um, I would have, you know, I think if I only had a dollar on the table, I would have favored IG. Uh, at, at that type of spread differential, it just was sort of, it felt like it was sort of a hundred basis points or even inside of a hundred basis points to go from double B to triple B. Uh, and that to me just didn't make so much sense. But with the widening in, of double B's into the 300s and, and above the 300, um, I think it still makes sense to, to buy some of the double B's. I think the best value is probably the higher quality single B's that require some, some real understanding of the credit and underwriting. Uh, in, in less cyclical or even non-cyclical businesses. Um, that to me is the best area or, or source of value. You could get, you know, sort of 450 to 550, 600 spreads, depending on the sector, depending on the cyclicality in that, in that area without going to triple C. Um, and I think that that's where, um, you know, the, it's a credit pickers market and that's where we like to play. Uh, but yeah, I think big picture, we did get a few weeks ago, get to the point where double B's kind of tightened too much, and, and now we're at a more reasonable spread differential versus IG. Um, so I, I would be pretty balanced between IG and, and double B, and, and you know, we, we just like spending our time on the, on the single high single B uh, uh, part of the market through alpha. So, yeah, just, I just want to ask you your, your final thoughts here. And again, I want you to think about it just as, you know, just sort of wind the band, whether it's, you know, private credit or whatever it is that you are you know, investing right now or where you're seeking opportunities that really might help our both our, you know, advisors um, and their clients, you know, and what Oak Tree offer would be, would be great to hear from you. So thank you. Yeah. Um, so it's a, it's an interesting time right now because I think it's the first time in a long time that it's become very clear that over the course of the next few years, I believe credit is going to outperform equity. And, and here's why. Um, if you look historically, the way the way I think about the S and P, if you take the inversion inverse of the uh, S and P multiple, so it's roughly been about 18 to 25 times as the P multiple the S and P has been trading out for the last few years. Today it's about 22 times. If you take the inverse of that, that's about four and a half percent, and four and a half percent is essentially the expected yield on the S and P today. And then you add, you know, your growth expectations, and that's you know, long term growth has been. You know, about 6%. Now, it's been as high as, you know, 10, 11% in the S&P in, in, in recent years. 
a little longer than sort of a 6% growth rate. And so the S&P over a medium to long period of time should return at, cur- at current prices something like, you know, 9 or 10%. Um, now, I compare that with high yield, senior loans, and private credit. And to me, um, it's not clear that, that equity is a buy given that type of expected return because, you know, high yield bonds are yielding about seven or eight percent, depending on how, what, where, where you want to play in the quality spectrum. Senior loans are delivering income of about nine to ten percent, uh, which is essentially on top of the S&P and in a cash yield. And then private credit is, is outperforming all of them and delivering about a 10 to 13% yield, depending on uh, what exactly that private credit manager is doing. Specifically in private credit, it's the best risk-adjusted returns we've seen in, in a very long period of time. And I'll give you some numbers to kind of help uh, uh, frame that, that statement. You know, several years ago, when a private credit deal was done, it was for the most part done in connection with a leveraged buyout. Uh, the leverage buyout sponsor would usually write a 40% equity check and there would be 60% of the enterprise value in the form of debt. Um, the pricing on private credit for most of the last five years uh, was around SOFR plus a spread of 500 to 550. Uh, it got even as tight as 475. Um, and when SOFR was at 25 basis points, there was a 1% SOFR floor built into these documents so that back then, private credit was yielding about 6 or 7%. Um, today, SOFR is at 4.5%, not 25 basis points. And the spreads have gone from you know, a range of 500 to 550, now to 600 to 700. Um, so there's usually about 100 to 150 basis points of widening that's occurred, plus base rates going up. And so firstly, private credit, again, to a private equity sponsor-owned business, is returning about 12%, um, which is super, super attractive, uh, especially when you consider the fact that the 40% equity check that used to be the standard a few years ago is now increased about 60%. The equity checks that we're seeing from private equity sponsors are now about 60% of the enterprise value of a new deal and higher. So you have lower loan-to-value, you have lower multiples that the private equity sponsors are paying for these businesses, and you have much higher return on the um, on, on the um, uh, the assets that you're originating. So this vintage, I think, over the next couple of years in private credit is going to look a whole lot more attractive than any prior vintage. Um, and I think that uh, it just meaningfully outperforms the, the publicly traded side for those investors that are willing to give up some liquidity to earn that incremental uh, spread and return. And, and finally, I think it's just the first time in a long time that, that credit, especially private credit, is going to deliver equity-like returns with far less risk. So pretty attractive time and an exciting time in the market. Well, this is – really, thank you so much. This has been really just a, a really great conversation and the time we wanted that. We've, we've definitely given a great outlook and some great ideas for our clients and advisors. So I thank you so much for, for coming on the podcast. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliates. The views and opinions expressed in this material by external guest speakers are those of the author, speaker, and are not those of UBS, its subsidiaries, or affiliates. Accordingly, UBS does not accept any liability over the content of this material or any claims, losses, or damages arising from the use or reliance of all or any part thereof. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient, and 
is published for informational purposes only. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.